Well, good morning. It is always good uh, to be together, to come together in song, in prayer, to gather around the Lord's table, to find grace, to receive it, to share it, and now uh, to gather our hearts together around God's Word. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the relationship that you make possible through the life and the death and the resurrection of your Son. And as we gather together around your word, we pray that we would be people who listen with our souls and not just our ears, that we would be open to the transformation, to the change that you want to bring about in each one of our lives. God, change is, is challenging, it's, it's hard at times, it's, it, can, it can even be scary, and we confess that to you, and yet we also ask that you would keep changing us into people who look more and more like your son. We thank you for the ways you speak to us, the ways you speak to us through each other, and I just pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, God, that you would help each one of us hear what we need to hear the most. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're starting a new message series this morning uh, that we're calling Blessing in Disguise. It's going to help us experience together the story of Jacob, one of the the more highly visible characters in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of different things that go on in his life. He has a complex relationship with God and his family. And there are many times in his story where we realize that as long as there have been families, there have been challenges, there's, there's been dysfunction, there's, there's been limitations, and all of us at times in our own families wonder, can God use us as a family with all of the, the things that we know we struggle with, the mistakes that we know we make, and, and Jacob's story reassures us time and again that God isn't looking for some family of perfection, God is simply wanting for us to belong to him and to each other. And so we're going to start this series by starting at the beginning. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to read together verses 19 through 23. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. And the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. I was born uh, at 6.38 in the morning on October 4th, 1978. And I was born to two nervous parents who were both excited but very nervous because I was their first. And while the the nurses were attending to my mother. My, my dad got to hold me for the very first time. And as all parents do the first time they get to hold their children, he was, he was just looking at me carefully from head to toe. And he immediately noticed that something was wrong with my right foot. It was, it was 
crooked. It was it was curled, and and he could tell it wasn't it wasn't normal. And and so without hesitation, he turned to the doctor and he said, "Hey, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with his foot?" And the doctor, knowing how overwhelming that moment would be if he went into all the details, just said to my dad, oh, he's going to be fine. We can fix that right up. Just enjoy the moment. Well, hours later, my parents were meeting with different doctors and eventually started talking to a pediatric orthopedic surgeon who said, yeah, this is, this is going to be a long journey. I was born with a, a birth defect that's commonly called a club foot. And the first thing that they were going to do was they were going to put a cast on me uh, from my hip to my toe. Uh, and, and they told my mother, uh, he's going to be growing so fast that we're going to have to change this cast out every single week. And you're going to be the one who has to soak him in the sink at home and get his cast off of him before you bring him back. So they showed her how she was going to have to cut this cast off of my leg with a box cutter, right? And she was going to have to do that every single week for four months. So they put that first cast on me, and they put me back into the newborn nursery, you know, the one with the big windows in it where everybody can see the babies. And my dad, on the second day of my life, was standing there looking at me, and a grandfather of one of the other babies stood next to him and said, you see that little guy in there with a the, with the cast on his leg? I just feel so bad for him. He's going to have a hard life. And my dad said, he's my son. And so for four months, this is my parents' life. Uh, and my mom said that, you know, I learned pretty quickly I could make a really loud noise with that, that cast if I banged it. That kind of became a, a dinner bell, right? And so I, I messed up my crib. I messed up uh, the changing table. Um, I, I did everything I could to kind of deal with this cast that I didn't know wasn't supposed to be there. And my mom said every week when she would soak me in the sink and she would start to cut that cast away from me, the moment that my, my leg was exposed to the air, the moment that cast came off, I started crying because I was so used to it that I didn't like the feeling of having it off. I was that used to being broken. Well, four months in, I, I have this surgery. It's four hours long. My dad said it was the longest four hours of his life. And they, they try to help fix my foot in ways that this cast that was slowly trying to, to straighten things out, it wasn't going to be able to do the whole job. So they have this, this surgery. Then they put me in more casts for uh, several more months. Then they, they put me in shoes that have braces on them. I mean, this was the story of my life. At a time in my life that I have absolutely no memory of. I only know this story because of old grainy pictures that my parents took and, and told me over and over, this is what it was like at the very beginning of your life. And I, I think back to that time of my parents' experience and I just don't know, you know, I, I think back to when, when Lauren and I first got to see Riley, our firstborn, and all the emotions that we had coursing through us. And I, I will never forget holding her for the first time and how she was crying until I said her name. And she calmed down. And I looked at her from head to toe and she was perfect. 
But that's, that's not at all what my parents had to go through. And when you have a, to- a toddler or you have a baby that has a cast, people ask you really awkward, strange questions. Did you drop him? How did you let him get hurt? Was he born like this? Hey, what's wrong with your kid? Right? New parents are already anxious about all all the things that they need to know how to do and take care of their baby. But to have to try to face and answer those kinds of questions was, was harder for my parents than I think they could even express to me. And over and over and over again, having to explain, yeah, he's had this treatment, he has ongoing treatment, we hope that someday, we know he wasn't born healthy and whole, but we hope that one day he might become healthy and whole. We, we hope that one day he might be able to walk. But not knowing, not having any real certainty about what kind of future I was going to have. And I know one thing. The deepest hope they had in their hearts about my future was that my birth defect wasn't going to define me for the rest of my life. Now, I'm far from the only baby who's born where there are challenges present. And I know that there's many families and people in this room where where this kind of story cuts uncomfortably close to some painful experiences you've been through, maybe some painful experiences you're going through. And it's hard in the midst of all of that to, to understand, to, to clearly see at times where God is present in those kinds of chapters of the stories of our lives. And yet we believe as people of faith that God is present even in those moments, maybe especially in those moments. And for, for many people I know that, that this is not a familiar story, right? That maybe all of your children or your grandchildren were born perfect and beautiful and physically whole, no complications, no hitches, no worries. I I know that not all of us have the same stories, the same experiences. I I, I know that sometimes the worries start even before birth. Irregular sonogram results or elevated blood test levels, scary questions that start to pile up. And all of it, coming back to this central fear that parents or grandparents or or, or somebody who's older, who's, who's holding a baby, that all of us have the same hope, right? That, that if there are challenges early in someone's life, that, that through God's grace, they'll somehow be able to have choices beyond those challenges. That they'll, they'll be able to have a life that's good and filled with goodness in it. Beyond the struggle, beyond the difficulties, we want a future, but it's difficult when that future is so uncertain. And, and sometimes the shock, it's, it's not a struggle. It's just, it's really a shock. It's something you didn't see coming, right? And having twins is that kind of shock. It's wonderful, but it's a shock. Ask anybody who's ever had twins. Ask Isaac and Rebecca. Right? They, they get together when, when Isaac is 40 years old. He is the the son of Abraham. His name Isaac means laughter because every time his his elderly parents look at him, they can't help but laugh with joy at the promise that he is living, breathing proof of. The promise that in a broken world of dysfunctional families, God has chosen a family to save everybody else. 
And, and Isaac has this same experience that his parents had, right? Gets married for 20 years. Isaac and Rebekah keep waiting and hoping for a child of their own. And it just, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen. But eventually, it does. Rebekah's pregnant. Now, she doesn't know this, but we know this. She's not just normal, run-of-the-mill pregnant. She's twins pregnant. She's, you better get a, a, a bigger stroller and a better car and another crib kind of pregnant. Right? And she doesn't know exactly what's going on, but she can feel that something's going on in her womb that isn't, it's not what she expected. It's not right. It's because these, these two baby boys are wrestling. They're pushing. They're fighting already in her womb. And so she prays to God, and she says, what's happening to me? Why is this happening? And God tells her something, I mean, thousands and thousands of years before anybody was ever able to know exactly what kind of baby they were going to have until the moment that baby was born. God tells her, you're going to have two boys, Rebecca, and I, I hate to tell you, but they're already at each other's throats. They're already fighting, and it's going to be like this. And then he adds a detail that I think is challenging for us to, to pick up all these years later. He, he says something that, that had cultural significance that I think we might miss. He says, not only are they, they in strife and wrestling and struggling with one another, I want you to know that the younger is going to be more powerful. He's going to be stronger than the older. Now, that's the, that's the phrase that I think would be easy for us to miss because of, of how different our culture is from this ancient Hebrew culture that, that God is speaking into when he gives this unexpected prophecy to Rebecca. Right? Because there is this unquestionable rule in that culture that, that told them how the world worked, especially in families. And that is that the firstborn son was always more important than any other son that might be born after him. And as a result, the firstborn son was always treated differently, was, was always rewarded differently. He was his father's favorite. And everybody knew it in the family because he was the family's future. There was no apologies. There was no pretending. The firstborn son was the most important child that an ancient family could ever have. And so older sons always ruled over younger sons in the family. Younger sons may not have liked it, and I'm sure that they didn't. But there was nothing they could do about it. It's just the way the world worked. It was as unchallengeable, it was as undeniable as the sun setting in the evening and rising in the morning. It was just the way things were. So when God speaks of a future to Rebekah, this future that he has in mind for these two boys, a future where the second-born son is going to take the position of privilege and honor that belongs to the firstborn son, God is speaking a future that is unlike anything the world had ever seen up to that point. It's unlike anything the world had ever experienced until that moment. God is breaking all of the social rules that have been set up. And he's saying that if he wants, if, if he chooses to partner with an unexpected person, an unexpected character in the story to carry out his will, to embody his blessing, to live out his promise, then that's exactly what's going to happen, and, and no one and no thing can stop it. 
God's unexpected prophecy in Genesis 25. It reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he writes, starting in verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. Uh, sorry, the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not, the things that don't exist yet to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. When God tells Rebekah that he's chosen the younger son to rule over his older brother, God is saying that he is choosing the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That, that, that God's choosing the lowly things. He's choosing the despised things, the things that have never happened and that aren't ever supposed to happen. At least not in human wisdom. God is choosing to transform the way we think things have to work. The way we think things have to stay. God refuses to accept the world's assumption that your birth gets to completely and totally define the life you're going to have. When the boys are, are born, the firstborn is covered in hair and he has a reddish complexion, so they name him Esau, which means hairy. The secondborn son is, is holding on to his brother's heel, so they name him Jacob, which means the one who holds on to, to a heel. Isaac and Rebecca may have been a lot of things. They weren't very creative in the names department. <laughs> right? And it's, it may not be, and if you're named Harry, I apologize ahead of time. It's spelled differently, by the way. I don't think many people, if they had their choices, would say, I want to be named Harry. Right? That, that's not great. But it beats what they're calling Jacob. Because it's not just visually descriptive of what was happening in the moment of his birth. It's an ancient Hebrew phrase that means, hey, um, you got to watch out for this guy because he's pulling your leg. He's, uh, he's pulling a fast one on you. He's a cheat. He's a scoundrel. He's a liar. Don't trust him. He'll stab you in the back. That's his name. You know, it's one thing to not like the name Harry. It's another thing that every single time dinner's ready, somebody says, hey, liar, dinner's ready. Can, can you think about what that would do to a person? I mean, being given that kind of name at birth is almost like being born with a spiritual birth effect, isn't it? I mean, when I was born with a club foot, the last thing my parents wanted was for everybody to see me and only see that birth defect, right? Can you imagine what would have happened to me psychologically and emotionally if they had decided to call me club foot? Cripple? Every single time somebody in my family called out to me, that's, that's what they called me? I mean... I, I underwent several procedures. I've gotten to the place where I can, I can walk. I still have significant nerve pain and other daily challenges because of this birth defect that I have, but it's a part of my life. It doesn't get to define everything about my life. 
And here at the beginning of Jacob's life, we, we realize just how hard the story of his life is actually going to be. We see how much the cards are stacked against him. His own parents have given him a name that keeps reminding him. Keep, it's reaffirming to him. Every time he might start to feel a little bit better about who he is, they, they call him dishonest. They, they call him a cheat. They call him uh, somebody that nobody should ever really invest in or trust. And over and over and over again, this is what he hears from the people who mean the most to him. They're telling him who he has to be. And it's all based on what he was doing at the moment of his birth. And the undeniable reality in all that is this. That the name that Jacob's parents give him sounds very different from the words God uses to talk about him in that prophecy. Right? They don't really line up. God doesn't call him a deceiver. He calls him an overcomer. God doesn't call him a cheat. He's a chosen one. God, God doesn't call him a scoundrel. God calls him strong. And for the next couple of months, as we experience the story once again, as, as people who belong to the tradition of faith, the family of faith that Jacob belongs to, what we're going to have to figure out is which one of these stories of his life is actually going to come true in the end. Are his parents right about him, or is it God who's right about him? And as much as it's easy for us to say, looking at somebody else's life story, well, obviously God's going to be the one who's right about him. It's a whole nother experience to be in the midst of a family where over and over you're told you're a deceiver, a cheat, a scoundrel. Which story's going to win? And I'll, I'll go ahead and, and spoil the ending for you. Just like in real life, it's not going to really be one or the other. It's going to be this complex marriage of both. And yet God is going to, to be present throughout. God is going to be active every second of Jacob's life, trying to help him believe that what his family says about him doesn't have to be true. And I, I want you to think of some questions as we're, we're going through this experience together. Questions that I think we can relate to. And that is, as we watch Jacob, who is it that he's going to finally figure out how to trust? Right? Is, is he going to learn to believe that when God says... Look, you're not perfect, Jacob. In fact, some of your flaws are, are glaringly obvious. But I have chosen to work through you. I've, I've chosen to be present in your life in, in a guiding, powerful way that means that, that no matter how many mistakes you might end up making, your story is not going to be a story of tragedy. It's going to be a story of hope. It's going to be gospel. Is, is Jacob going to find a way to believe that, or is he going to keep doubting not just himself, but God's ability to transform who he, who he thinks he can be into who God knows he can be? Destiny isn't a word that I, I like to use all that often. It gets thrown around, I think, a little too much in our world. I, I often feel like it's thrown around to kind of abdicate any sense of our own responsibility in in how we're crafting 
a life together with God. But the sense of destiny is woven throughout the story. And, and so I want to be clear about this, that when you read Scripture and you come across the word destiny or, or destined, we need to be consistent in the way Scripture is, is trying to talk about what does that word say about God's interaction with us in our lives and where we're going. And, and when you read Scripture carefully, I think you'll find that time and again, that the destiny that God has for somebody is is not this highly detailed list of every decision they're going to make already having been determined. It's this overarching direction. It's this this overall trajectory in their life to go in a certain direction, to to head to, to a certain destination. And along the way, they've got all kinds of choices that they're going to have to make. And God's going to let them make those choices. And sometimes they make the choices we hope they will. And other times they make the choices that we're afraid they're going to make. And and yet, through it all, God is interacting. And and God is responding to those choices. Not so much forcing them to just go one way, detail after detail after detail. But actually walking alongside of them and redeeming their way. Helping them in ways that they see and at times in other ways that they cannot possibly see or understand. And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about this idea of God-given destiny, I don't want us to think about God dreaming something beautiful for our lives. It's really just about God controlling our lives. God isn't interested in playing with our lives as if we're pawns on some chessboard. God is not trying to live your life for you. God created you so that God could live life with you as a kind of of divine partner, a, a, a sacred collaborator, a soul friend. And So like Jacob, God has destined us. God's not controlling us, but he's destined us for something better than the world would ever offer us. God chooses us. God calls us towards an unwavering, breathtaking dream he has for us. And here's the key. It's never just for me. It's it's never just for you. It's for everyone. It's for all of us. And if the, the destination we're headed towards isn't a world that's more filled with the experience of God's love and mercy, and grace, not just for some of us, but for all of us. If that's not where we're going, then where we're headed is far too small and far too focused on ourselves and ourselves alone. And what I want to leave you with this morning is, is this, that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter the names that other people may have called you, especially in your lowest moments. And we've all been called names that we would like to forget, I mean, we've all had times where somebody has looked us in the face and called us a liar. Some of us have been called cheater and loser and cripple and broken and emotionally unstable, intellectually challenged, socially inept, unemployed, insecure, below average, jealous, criminal, undesirable. We all get names thrown at us, names that hurt us, names that that cripple us, names that can change us for the worse if we'll let them, if we'll believe in them. But brothers and sisters, the worst names that have ever been thrown at you, they're never the names that God wants to give you. 
It's, it's not the way God would ever speak to you. It's, it's not the way God would ever talk about you. And God doesn't care what anybody else thinks about you because God knows more about you than anybody else. And he can see something in you that maybe nobody else sees. He can see something in your future that maybe you don't know how to see. Things in your future and in your interactions with other people that are far better than anything that any of us could ever dream up to ask or imagine, Paul says. You aren't who other people say you are. You aren't who you're afraid you might be. You are who God says you are. You aren't who other people say you are, and you aren't who you're afraid you might be. You are who God says you are. And I want you to live with that conviction this week as all the people in your life, maybe with good intentions at times, try to define you and tell you, try to, try to say this is what your identity is, when what they really mean is this is who I need you to be. The question we've got to wrestle with is who is God calling us to be? So I want to say this together. Because I want this to find a home in your heart. Let's say this together, and it'll be the end of the sermon, so we'll preach the ending together, right? Okay, I am not who other people say I am. I am not who I'm afraid I might be. I am who God says I am. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives will be waiting out in our lobby Outside of all of these, these major doors, these exits, they want to be community to you. They want to remind you of who you really are because of the gift of Jesus Christ. If you have any burden on your heart, if you have a thanksgiving, if you need to talk to a Christian couple or pray with a Christian couple, please go to them as together we stand and sing.